1: Grace Burrows is a New York Times best-selling romance author who started out writing for the sheer fun of amusing herself. She'd written close to two dozen books and more than two million words before she ever thought of publishing anything. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today Grace talks about why the joy of the pen is its own reward and what it's like being a multiple Rita finalist and now author of more than 70 Regency and Scottish romances. But before we talk to Grace, just a reminder that the show notes for this Binge Reading episode can be found on the website thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Grace's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Grace. Hello there, Grace, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. It is wonderful, and I do mean wonderful to be here. Our our listeners don't know, but we've had a few little technical hitches in getting here, so it's especially good to be now speaking. But beginning at the beginning, was there a once upon a time moment when you decided you wanted to write fiction, and if there was a catalyst, what was it?
2: Well, I think I have recounted elsewhere uh, the, the idea that I came upon a book, I was saving it, you know, for a cold, dark, lonely night, and uh, the book just didn't do the job. It was a little disappointing, and I had the thought, the same as many of us have, I bet I could do this. I bet I could write a book. Um, and I did begin to write. Uh, a catalyst, though, would have been um, my master's degree. I I am a lawyer, but I went back to school to get a master's degree in conflict and conflict uh, resolution. And my advisor asked me, well, if you could write anything in the world uh, for your master's thesis, what would you write? And I told him I would write a novel, and that novel would have... Uh, two pro, two lawyers as the protagonists. One of them would love the legal system. One of them would see it as a necessary evil um, and have had an experience with many of the ways that it's flawed. And I'd make it a romance. And my advisor said, well, why don't you do that? <laughs> and I wasn't expecting a graduate advisor uh, to advise me to write fiction. But I just had the best time. It wasn't the first my first attempt uh, at fiction, uh, but it was my, it was a catalyst in the sense that the book had a theme, uh, what is justice? Um, and uh, that, that made writing the romance more of a challenge and more fun. Um, so I would say that uh, putting together that manuscript was a turning point for two reasons. Uh, first of all because it was a more complicated uh, process uh, than simply writing a love story because that's what I love to write Um, also my advisor read it when it was finished (laughs) and to that point I hadn't been writing for anybody else to read I'd just been writing for fun Uh, so there's sort of the catalyst story it may not be the uh, the first book that I wrote, but it was a turning point book.
1: That's so interesting that they did ac- even accept it as a master's thesis. That's fantastic, actually. Well, it
2: was four hundred pages. You know, it, it certainly held up in terms of weight uh, to anything that was being written in that department at the time. Yes, and I, it was a uh, the book turned out to be, I think, the sweetest kiss. Um, It was published years later uh, in a revised form, and I think it did a good job of showing that uh, when the American legal system works, uh, it can achieve justice. Too often, it does not work, um, and the results are tragic. So uh, I, I hit those wickets too. But that was probably a contemporary,
1: was it? Yes, that was a contemporary. But you've very much made your world now, the Regency period um, with the romances that you've been doing in more recent times.
2: Yes, and I've done some Scottish Victorians and some Scottish Regencies. Gotta have my, my dose of Scotland.
1: <laughs> but it's always been romance. Your strapline on your website is, I believe in love. And I guess that for you, that's there's never been a temptation to do anything else but romance.
2: There has not. Um, I've I've toyed with the idea of writing historical mysteries um, because I so admire those and I enjoy many of them. Um, But uh, the the plotting um, is not as familiar to me as the romance plotting. Uh, You know, there may be a, a historical mystery series in my future. Um, but it's not talking to me yet.
1: Yeah, sure. So how many novels had you finished before you thought to publish one? I, I think, well, I've known from reading website interviews and things that there were a, an amazing number of books that you'd actually beavered away with just for your own fun, as you describe it. How many had you got to at that stage before you thought about publishing?
2: Well, maybe a couple dozen, but... Um... Twenty, somewhere between twenty and twenty-five, uh, and they were they were monstrosities. Um, you know, two hundred thousand words. I was having the best time. I got a hold of Stephen King's on writing, and somewhere in there, and the, you know on writing is I think twenty years old. He said he thought one hundred eighty thousand words was a good length for a book. Well, nobody writes one hundred eighty thousand words except Stephen King. <laughs> Um, you know, so I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but uh, and sometimes I had to chop a book into two books before it could be published. But, um, oh, I was so happy writing those books.
1: Wow. And and none of it was as, as a business decision. You know, as a beginner writer myself now, um, you read everywhere about how as a writer, you have to understand you're a business person. But that's completely contrary to your um ethos, isn't it?
2: Oh, yes. Um, But at the time, I was uh, running my own law practice. So, you know, the idea that something is a business topic, or you've got to scope out the business angle, that's just a yawn. I've been running my own business for 25 years. Um, I do wish I had self-published sooner. Um, Everybody said self-publishing is so much work. Well, no, it's not, not compared to running a law practice and not compared to my experiences with traditional publishing. So I should have uh, seen for myself sooner in that regard. Um, but I, I don't have a television um, and I live pretty much alone in the country. So entertaining myself uh, has always been an item on the agenda. And uh, writing for me was just a form of entertainment. And I think uh, we've lost that. We've lost sort of writing as a hobby. But uh, for me, it, it was uh, it was a good five years of just frolic.
1: Now, I might have this wrong, but I think that the first novel that you talked to, uh, talked with someone about possible publication, was one called Gareth, Lord of the Rakes. Was that right? Is that the
2: first one? That is the first Regency that I finished. I finished the manuscript. Um, and that, I think, should have been, at least in that series, The Lonely Lords, the first one published. Um, however, my uh, what the, the first pub house that I worked with was Sourcebooks, and my editor was Deb Worksman. And she had the thankless task of sifting through, she would say, send me your best three. And then send me three more and send me three more and send me three more until she spotted three books uh, that she thought were good quality, representative of the brand, and could make a good, strong trilogy of brothers. Mm-hmm. So the first one she published was The Air*, followed by The Soldier and The Virtuoso.
1: I was interested in Gareth because when I read about the premise, it sounded remarkably brave for a first-time author. It was a rakish marquess who's tasked with ruining a proper and well-bred young woman. And I thought, wow, that's pretty strong territory for a romance novel first
2: um, book. Well, I have uh, four brothers, and I've told them, I struggle with plotting. You know, you pick the low-hanging fruit, you use the tropes that appeal to you most, and then what do you do? (laughs) And one brother said to me at one point, you make your protagonists choose between the competing demands of honor. And, you know, here is a Marquess, and he's sort of convinced himself that he's an unredeemable bad boy. And a proper lady says to him, look, if you ruin me, I'll be ruined, but I'll be able to, I'll have a roof over my head. I'll be safe. I'll have means, uh, because I can manage this brothel that's been bequeathed to me. If you don't ruin me, I'll be ruined just the same because I've been left in penury uh, but I won't be able to eat. I'll end up on the street and I would rather own the brothel than work in the brothel. And those were his choices and he could have walked away you know but then she would have gone to somebody else. So I thought I, you know, I did a pretty good job of boxing the hero into dude just how big a horses behind are you willing to be? Um, and in the end, he sort of found a way out of the box and he found his own decency in the process. Uh, so it, uh, we can thank one of my brothers for that premise.
1: <laughs> it's I remarkably uh, astute, really, because, you know, in the craft books that I've read, there's this thing called the best bad choice. Yeah. And, you, and the idea is to give your protagonist, push them into a situation where they're faced with two bad choices and they have to make the best of a bad choice. That's one of the um, that's one of the ways that you sort of generate interest and in conflict. So it's that under another guise,
2: isn't it? Isn't it? It is, and it's. Uh, I find a theme in my life is rejection of forced choices. Um, you know, we're often told, "Well, you can be a social worker or you can be a scientist, but you can't be both." Well, yes, you can. It's just going to be long and expensive and a lot of work, but you can. Um, or uh, women are frequently asked, is it, you know, career or family? Whoever asks a man that? Men are doing both all the time. Um, so my knee-jerk reaction in the face of a forced choice is, those are not my only options. There's at least a third way and probably a fifth and a seventh.
1: Yeah, that's great. And when it comes to plotting, you you also can do that, you know, write a little list of 10 things that could happen and then decide on, which is, looks the most interesting. And I think it often is when you get to four or five or six that the most interesting idea starts to pop up. The first two or three may not be the most interesting at all. So that, but that's a little side the track, I suppose. Um, the, the major series is the Wyndham family, and they have grown into a, 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 an empire, really. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how long have you been writing the Wyndhams and how many books are there now?
2: There are a total of eight Wyndhams, because there are eight yep. siblings. Um, there are a couple little novellas for the mom and dad, the Duke and Duchess. Um, and these Wyndhams just sort of pop in and out of the bushes in other books. Um, but I think there are a total, with all the novellas, uh, 10 or 12 yeah. titles. Yeah, yeah. Because there's an impressive um,
1: family tree in the beginning of them that you can sort of look and see who how they're all interrelated.
2: Yeah. If you're a visual thinker, and I am, those I would rather see a family tree than read a list of dramatis personae. Yeah. yeah. I want yeah. a picture.
1: Your, your books have a very strong sense of period, which is one of the things I enjoy about them. And I'm curious to know, have you actually, you know, visited England and looked in in the in, in Regency London or or got a feel for the period by actually going
2: there? I have I'm lucky to live on the east coast of the United States so a trip across the pond is uh six hours in a plane seven hours in a plane it's not that bad um and we mostly do red eyes from the east coast so you fall asleep in Newark and wake up in London um and uh I go as often as I can afford to, and I try to see uh, a combination of things I've planned um, and sort of serendipitous, spontaneous. That looks interesting, kind of items. And uh, it's in the United States. Our recorded history started me three hundred years ago, maybe four hundred if you're on the East Coast, but if you're on the West Coast. 150 years ago and you compare that you know to the centuries and even millennia of history that's available in the UK and uh, it just boggles the American mind um, and it, it's delightful and it feels like you can dig and dig and dig and dig and dig and, dig and never reach bedrock um, in the culture. It uh, It fascinates me. I wish I could spend long chunks of time yeah
1: yeah yeah perhaps moving away from the specific books to a more general focus you've hit the new york times bestseller list three times in four books at one stage and you've been a reader finalist many times you must have a sense of having quotes made it now have you and what does that feel like
2: it feels wonderful um I uh, I am so fortunate. I am just so um, sort of a quiver with glee that I get to do something I love so much um, and make a living at it. And uh, I'm so grateful to my readers, to, to the other writers that boost me along the way. Um, this is what I was born to do, is to write happily ever afters. And You know, on fifth grade career day, way back when you're a little person, nobody ever says to you, would you like to be, would you like to write fiction? You know, it's just not one of the, you know, just as they they don't offer us, would you like to be a painter? Uh, Would you like to be first violist uh, in the Philharmonic? The arts and the creative pursuits are not presented to us as professional options on the same footing Um, that some of the uh, other choices are. And uh, I'm just so glad, so uh, grateful is the word, that I can do this for a long time. I did this and I was also a child welfare attorney. Nobody should have to be a child welfare attorney. You know, you see things and hear things and you have to listen to stories and meet people Who have experienced trauma on top of tragedy, on top of foolishness. And uh, it's, I think, if I had not had the romance to read and write while I was being that kind of lawyer, I could not have been that kind of lawyer. I couldn't have represented those clients. I couldn't have lasted as long as I did. So I am grateful to romance. Uh, to romance writers who've sustained me, and I'm grateful to be a romance writer.
1: In what way do you think that romance has changed over the time you've been writing? And do readers expect something different from you now than they did
2: when you first started out? Um, Let's say I've been writing for the past 10 years. um, And uh, in that time, uh, historical romance, for one thing, has become broader, you can now write uh, Edwardian, you can write Victorian, you can write Elizabethan, you can write ancient Rome, you can write uh, Incan Peru. Uh, So the readership uh, has broadened with us. Um, There are far more options within the romance genre. Um, You know, it's as if the subgenres don't fade. There's still people writing vampires. There are people writing dystopian. There are people writing erotic romance. It's all still there and all available, but we keep adding uh, more depth and breadth um, to the genre. There is certainly an emphasis on diversity and inclusivity that wasn't there 10 years ago. We have a long way to go, but the discussion has started. Um, I think there are more people writing romance, which is good. Um, self-publishing, of course, has changed the landscape for many of us, and uh, it—you know—it's no longer just a traditional publishing game. So, I see all of those steps as positive. I think the genre is livelier, um, and. It, it does a better job of offering something for almost it's every reader. It's
1: yeah. Is there one thing you've done in your writing career more than any other that you see has helped with your success?
2: That's an interesting question because I think often as writers, we look at the people at the top of the game and we say, I'm going to do what they're going to do and I'm going to be successful uh, without realizing that um, there's a fallacy in that. You know, if those people had been doing things a little more like we do, they might be twice as successful. Um, So uh, success fallacy is something that I try to be aware of. Uh, If I am successful, to some extent, it's despite what I've done, not because of what I've done. And trying to figure out those two piles, you know, where are the despites and where are the because ofs, takes a crystal ball. Um, I would say the one thing I have done that has allowed me to keep writing, because in order to succeed, you got to have books, um, is uh, focus on the writing, stay with the writing, stay with what I call the joie de plume, the joy of the pen, um, because it's very easy to get distracted by comparing yourself to other people, by hopping on writing trends, by hopping on marketing trends, by um, seeing the glass half empty. But if writing brings you joy and you can keep in touch with that joy, then all the ups and the downs uh, won't unhorse you. Uh, And the ups can unhorse you just as badly as the downs. But if you can stick with the writing um, and stick with the pleasure of creation, then you'll probably be around for a long time having a good time. Grace, that sounds so
1: wise. I I think that's marvellous. I can see why you have been invited to be a, a speaker at Romance Writers New Zealand. You've got a lot of wisdom there. Look, turning to Grace as reader, you know, this series is called The Joys of Binge Reading, and I've seen it as being focused on writers who do do series because the the taste for reading in series has certainly developed since we've been binge-watching on TV, or some people have been binge-watching on TV. Have you ever been a binge-reader yourself? And if so, is there a current series or author who you're really enjoying at the moment?
2: Well, because my reading tastes were developed when all we had was traditional publishing and, you know, you would get one or two Mary Bailogs a year, Um, you know, the idea that you can just plow through a whole series, um, you know, that that an author might have a book for you every month, uh, that's a real paradigm shift for me. What I do over the winter, though, is I read whole series. I will read the Bedwin series. I will read the Bridgertons. I will, re- you know, um, that's how I spend my winters because the evenings are long and cold and dark. Uh, they are perfect for reading. And uh, so I do binge read series. Now, now sorry, um, just
1: to interrupt you there, but for those who don't know those series, who are those, who's the author of those, the Bedwins and the Brunitons?
2: uh Mary Balogh wrote the Bedwins. We probably know that as the Slightly series, Slightly Dangerous, Slightly Wicked uh, she had six siblings and finished with the Duke uh, slightly dangerous um, and uh, it was you know just they're big thick books and lots of family interaction in a very developed world the Bridgertons are of course Julia Quinn's sort of uh, foundation series um, and it's uh, going to be developed by Netflix Um yeah. Uh, that sounds like a good idea. Um, but again, it was eight siblings um, and the the books did not come out in quick succession, but now you can read them, you know, in a week and it's a very wonderful week when you do.
1: I've read quite a bit of, well, I, when I first started out, I read a lot of Julia Quinn, but I don't, if I've read one of those, it hasn't kind of remained in my poor old adult brain. Um, I started reading Romance a long time ago, so I must go back to those because Julia was one of my absolute favourites when I started out, yeah.
2: Well, and that series, I think, is about 20 years old. I think it was among her earliest books. Um, but again, it, uh, it, it, it wasn't published quickly like some series are now. It was a book or two a year, uh, so it came out over a span of several years. But, oh, those books have held up. They are wonderful.
1: And it's terrific that they've been picked up by Netflix now. That just that thing about the creative work never really dies is is very much seen there, isn't it?
2: Oh, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I hope there, you know, there there they're develops a large and unquenchable appetite uh, for historical romance series on Netflix. <laughs>
1: That's right. Look, we're we're sort of coming to the end of our time together. So I'm just turning back. And looking across the years, at this stage in your career, if you were doing it all again,
2: what, what would you change, if anything? Well, I've mentioned that I would self-publish sooner. I think also I would trust my gut more. Um, it's, uh, you know, as we bring to writing a lot of experience as parents and spouses and professionals and neighbors and homeowners and uh, and yet, somehow, when it comes to the writing, uh, we sort of forget all that and um, are looking to others for guidance, sometimes contrary to our instincts. And when I have the uh oh feeling as a lawyer or as a mom, I listen to it. I was much slower to listen to my instincts as a writer, um, you know, so that if somebody was saying that a deal didn't, if it, if There was an offer on the table that didn't feel quite right to me. I was more likely to just sort of hold my nose and sign it and assume I didn't know any, you know, I was new to this. um, I didn't understand the business end of it. Uh, People would, would consider themselves very lucky to even have a contract on the table. I talked myself out of my doubts and I should not have done that.
1: That's really interesting, yes.
2: Now, what is next for Grace, the writer? Your work and project,
1: and any new projects underway?
2: I will start a new series. Uh, I'm well, yes, uh, the series is Rogues to Riches, and the first book comes out November, and uh, that will be my one and only Duke. Um, and uh, it's, I, I, the the premise for this series came to me as follows. I think. Uh, to a certain extent, we're all a little tired of dukes and billionaires and alpha males. And, um, you know, it's hard to keep that material fresh because it's been done so often. Um, and yet a man who is high status or a woman who's high status has a long way to fall. Um, so it's fun to write those characters. And uh, it is interesting to watch them uh Brought to the brink of despair, despite all the power and blessings they might have at the beginning of the book. So I asked myself, who is the farthest person I can think of in Regency London from a Duke? And being a lawyer, I said, well, a convicted killer awaiting execution in Newgate. So that's where I started. Uh, that, that's where our hero is um, when the book opens. And uh, from there, he has to sort of uh, backslide, slip, slither, and claw his way uh, to a happily ever after. And that book was so much fun to write. <laughs> it was a, a, it was a challenge, but it, it turned out to be a, a fun little book.
1: Now it's a series, so you must already have an idea in mind as to where that series is going. But with with a single guy like that, I is it giving any secrets away to to say to ask how do you build a series from that one it's a great premise for a book but how do you make it continue
2: well one of the things this hero his name is Quinn Wentworth one of the things Quinn has to learn is not to be such a lone wolf he has younger siblings oh, okay. yeah. um, and uh, the first person he has to let into his life is of course his his wife his his love interest um, and uh, he also is a, his power comes from the fact that he's a very wealthy banker. The bankers were held in pretty universal contempt um, because they were always skirting around the usury laws. Uh, so he has a business partner. He has employees. He has uh, servants in his home. Um, there is a community orbiting around him. And at the beginning of the book, he's kind of oblivious to that. And by the end of the book, he truly is a duke. Um, he uh, leads. He leads others. He doesn't just go charging around on his own. Um, and his duchess is largely responsible for bringing him into the fold that way. But uh, to answer your question, there are two younger sisters. There's a younger brother. There's a cousin. There's a business partner. There are plenty of people to make a series with.
1: Right. Yeah, I see that. Yeah. So we are now pretty well out of time. So where can readers find you online and are you active
2: in social media? I am somewhat active on Facebook, less so on Twitter. Uh, I send people to places. Of course, I have a website, graceburrows.com, where you, uh, you know all the books are summarized and the pretty covers are there and I do my blogs on Sunday. But anymore, I'm telling readers, if you just want to stay uh, up to date with new releases or discounts and deals, just follow me on BookBub. Um, It's, uh, I think, a happy little environment where we all recommend books to each other. But you're spared sort of the social media kitten pictures and flame wars. And um, you just get the things a reader wants to know. When is a book coming out? When is a book going on sale? Right. And, uh, you know, if you want more than that, you can sign up for my newsletter on the website or find me on Facebook as Grace Burroughs Author.
1: Fantastic, Grace. Look, it's been such a pleasure to see you. And and. To put a little bit of a time space on this, I know that we're going to be actually meeting in in a couple of weeks at Romance Writers New Zealand Conference, and I'm really looking forward to hearing what you've got to say there and meeting you in person. So thanks so
2: much. Thank you very much. Can't wait to meet you in person. Okay, bye. Bye Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading.
1: The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's really and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone, as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both lighthearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.